Are you ready to go offside? Because it's time for Offside Hockey Talk with your host, James Roberts, and myself, Doug Ireland. Ladies and gentlemen, I am proud to be sitting here tonight talking to the one and only Steve Seftel, author of Shattered Ice, former NHL player of four awesome games, great junior player. Steve, how is the evening going for you tonight? Very good, James. Thanks for having me. It's uh, bright and sunny here in Waterloo and uh, about 28 degrees. Nice day. Uh, it's a beautiful day to talk about hockey, eh? <laughs> yeah. Always a good time to talk about hockey. That's it right there. Well, Steve, to, to let the, uh, I guess the cat out of the bag right away, you have a book out right now. It's called Shattered Ice, and it's your journey through hockey and your journey through your, your mental health aspects and everything that's gone on in your life. Um I wouldn't say what inspired you, but what brought you to write the book? Two years ago, um, I had a, what I call a breakdown, um, where my body just quit on me. And I, I will say, like, when I went, I was seeing a therapist shortly after. A good way to explain it is, this is what I talked about with my therapist. Um, she said, I kept my mental health inside, uh, for years and what my therapist said to me was you have so many jars to put inside the shelves on your body in your body and she said eventually those you run out of space for those jars and what happens is you either uh implode explode or get sick and i so when you implode you know that's self-harm uh when you explode you hurt others and then third one is you get sick i got sick and I was uh, in bed, really couldn't get out of bed, and uh, that was the catalyst for me writing the book. Um, it all just—I had a lot of time on my hands. I was at home, and I wasn't comfortable going outside, so I just dove right into the book. Now, the book for you, writing it—you know—did it open old wounds to to think about these things that happened in the past with your mental health and? Now, knowing what we know about mental health and the stigma that surrounds it and how everyone, you know, is now kind of rallying to bring it to the forefront, to support people, to let people know that it's not something to be ashamed of or hide behind. But when you go back, do you wish that there was a time where you said, hey, I need to speak to someone now. I need to get this out there now, you know, just to not just help your either your NHL career or your job with Toyota or any of those kind of things, but just to for yourself to move that next step. Is there a time that you can think of that you say, you know what, this is when I should have came out. No matter what was said, I should have stepped out here and this is it. Well, to answer the first question, it did. writing the book did open some old wounds, for sure. It actually took me back to some very dark places. And I have to... I want the uh, listeners to know that everything I wrote wasn't dark. There was a lot of great memories, joyous memories, but there's also a lot of painful memories. And it brought me back to those painful moments. And what it did is made me realize some of the mistakes I made along the way. So that's kind of your second question. Do I, should I have done some things differently? Absolutely, I should have. But it wasn't part of the culture either... Uh, in the public, you know, in, the, in public or in the hockey world, the culture was to internalize everything, suck it up, and get out there and put your feelings behind you inside, 
and worry about the as far as hockey goes, worry about the next game or what's coming up tomorrow. It wasn't about dealing with feelings. I wish I would have done some things differently, but I did not feel comfortable to do so. And truthfully, I didn't know who to ask for help back when I was 20 years old and playing, turning professional. Well, I mean, the same thing can be said today. A lot of people don't know where to turn. And even though there's all these great initiatives like Bell Let's Talk Day and, you know, different things that have come out to the forefront now, it still seems a lot of people have the mentality, like you said, to either put it behind them and try to move forward or suck it up or just completely internalize for so long. I mean, this doesn't just span across hockey, like we said just before we started tonight. You know, this is all across. And someone I listen to um, for his own show on The Breakfast Club is uh, Charlemagne the the God or whatever they call him. Um, he's a host there and he had the same thing. He used to have anxiety attacks and just really bad things that went on. And he never talked about it, never went and seen anyone. And then finally, just like yourself one day said, you know what, this needs to be faced. And, you know, it's another person coming out and saying, Hey, this is something that happens to a lot of people. It's not a bad thing. It's something that needs to be talked about. It's something that once you start talking about, people can rally around you and help you and look for the signs. And much like I've read a lot of uh, articles on your book and just on you in general, you know, once you got out there, it's your family helping you as you, quote, fight the beast. Yes, absolutely. Um, it wasn't until two years ago I went to see, uh, I was seeing a psychotherapist, and she said to me, I want you, she knew I was a hockey player, she said, uh, I want you to, do you know Michael Landsberg? And I said, yes, I do. She said, I want you to go home and watch his videos on YouTube. So I went home, got pulled them up on YouTube. I watched Michael speak. He's an amazing public speaker and very knowledgeable on mental health and also someone who suffers. And I was mesmerized. I had never heard anybody speak about mental health openly in that fashion. And for me personally, it was a huge, it was a huge relief um, that night. I remember very vividly sitting there and just having those words absorbed that I had never heard anything like it. So, and it's hard for me to uh, fathom that that was just two years ago. I think we've come a long way in the last two years, but there's still a long way to go. I kind of compare it to turning a a large ocean liner. (laughs) We're trying to turn this ship around, but it's just starting to move and there's a lot of work ahead. Definitely there's a lot of work ahead, but you know, people like yourself and, and others that are coming out and talking about it, you know, it, it's what helps, you know, steer that rudder the right way. And, you know, you only have to wonder if these initiatives and the mentality of, hey, you know, mental health is just as important as physical health was always, you know, put together even way back when and not looked at as something that is soft or, you know, as, um, you know, people say kind of like, wuss culture or anything like that you know get back on the ice just play you know if it was brought to the forefront quicker there's a lot of people that may still be around as well as i mentioned you know this doesn't just affect hockey players like yourself but i mean you look at comedians like robin williams and things like that that people have these mental problems um you know and the stigma surrounding it they don't want to say anything so they mask the pain or you know they hide away like you said i read an article on you know, you didn't want to face people and you'd be at Sears and you'd hide in a coat rack to, to avoid them, you know, just because you didn't want to speak about things. You know, 
those things, if they weren't so shunned upon for so long, there's a lot of people and a lot of different um, things that could be happening right now. And like you said, over the past two years, we've come a long way. But hopefully with yourself coming out with this book and more people coming forward and, and pushing, you know, it, it pushes the issue forward. And I liken it to the uh, the concussion issue. You know, you look at guys like Daniel Carcillo and others who are coming forward and pushing the envelope to get the message out there. It, it takes some and sometimes some radical people to push it that limit for people to pay attention. I'm just wondering for yourself, you know, putting this book out and speaking with people and now starting to get the momentum going, what has the reception been like? Oh, the reception has been terrific. And what I can, another important piece of this, that you talked about the stigma and not feeling comfortable talking about it. Oh, about six months ago, I told some, I had already told some family, but I hadn't gone beyond my immediate family. And about six months ago, I started to tell people, friends, coworkers, just a few. And it was very uncomfortable for me. And I, I realized at that moment how strong the stigma was because I could hardly get the words out myself. And it should really be free-flowing. Um, it shouldn't be that difficult to say because if I have a sore back, I don't mind telling my friends and family about my sore back. But when we have a mental health issue, it's just that's the stigma. People are afraid to talk about it because of the stigma, and it creates a lot of stress on the individual suffering. And a, a story I had thought of just reached, uh, mo- moments ago when you were talking was I went to see the movie Rocket Man about Elton John's story. And Michael Landsberg also talks about people wearing the mask. And there's a scene in the Rocket Man where Elton John's arguing fiercely with his songwriter. And he's at a concert. And he does this, he's angry and yell, shouting at his songwriter. And then he turns, and now it's time to go on stage. So he turns, he puts a big smile on his face, and he jumps out. And now he's Elton John. That's the mask. So I'm often asked, how do you do it as a hockey player when you when you feel this way? And I said, we wear the mask. You are trained from a young age to focus on the game, focus on the next shift, focus on the next game. And that's the mask. So you, we are very good at compartmentalizing and focusing for 60 minutes. And then when that 60 minutes over, you're back to dealing with your inner demons again. They're still there, but you set it aside. Well, there's a lot of players in the NHL or even in junior hockey that they always you always hear about the mental hurdles. These guys need to get over the mental hurdles. And you have to stop and wonder if those mental hurdles that they're referring to could possibly be something like you're dealing with yourself, the anxiety, you know, and there's a lot of people that don't know how to deal with the pressure of you know, going to the next level or having expectations placed upon them. So the anxiety attack set in, you know, then the fear and then the, oh my God, am I doing this right? And then the wanting to withdraw and just, you know, that affects everything. And some, like you said, go ahead. Well, something I'd like to talk about there is there's nothing wrong with a little bit of nerves and it's very normal to be nervous before performance for hockey players. And you all, everybody knows what butterfly, butterflies feel like before you go on the ice. And there's a, there's some health, I would call it healthy pressure. Yep. 
and anxiety that you feel before you go on the ice. And the guys will often say, well, I get that first bump in or I get the puck on my stick. I, or goalie will say, I get the first shot and they're in the game. What happens when you suffer from mental illness is post-game or pre-game, you can get to a point where it's completely debilitating. And that's, that's where you know it, it's, a, it's a concern. There's that healthy stress, but if it's debilitating where the point is you don't function properly, then there's something to have. start asking questions for sure. Definitely. Well, there's one um, famous incident that just happened that I can actually use uh, right here for this uh, show. Um, boxer Anthony Joshua um, had gotten dropped before his title defense against Louisa Louis Ortiz, and basically he did that in sparring. And it was a week later was the fight, and in the locker room before the fight, he actually had a full fledged panic attack. Like, full-fledged, anxiety set in, panic attack, freaked out, and they played his music for him to walk out. He didn't come out, and when he finally did, it was everyone kind of, like, coaxing him and nursing him, but they said that his body completely shut off. He did just, the pressure just completely debilitated him. He just wasn't able to move, and he just wasn't himself. And, you know, just hearing you speak about that, like, the before... You know, for some people now, obviously in combat sports, you're taking a lot of blows to the head. So that leads into a different situation, but still the anxiety attack, the pressure and all those kind of things. It just, it always makes you wonder what these guys are going through without actually knowing what they're going through. Absolutely. And I think everybody approaches a game in a little different fashion. Hockey players are are known for their pregame rituals and their superstitions. As far as anxiety though goes, you're mentioning panic. Panic is the most terrorizing form of anxiety, and I, I'm envisioning in my head this this boxer and, and being paralyzed by fear, and I totally understand and know what that feels like. And it's uh, it's that's one of the debilitating aspects that I was talking about, where if, if it's to the point where you can't function as a normal person or your what your normal activity level is then you need to seek some treatment and there's a lot of treatment available and we just have to encourage players and even people who are outside of sports that they just have they feel that they have to ask for help or at least go look for it and as far as the caregiver goes you know I, I this is interesting too because Michael Landsberg also talks about the healthy brain and it's hard when you're healthy mentally to understand what the person is feeling. And I get this question asked me a lot lately now that I have shattered ice out there and people are starting to read it. I'm starting to get some questions to me. And um, one of the questions I get from some mostly parents is, I don't know how to treat this or I don't know what to do. And that's that healthy brain. Because you have the healthy brain, you, you, you don't understand. But where you just described a panic attack, I start. I knew exactly what you were talking about. So I think the most important thing for the caregiver is to make the person feel safe. They have to ride it out. Um, you know, we're we're not. There's a process that has to happen, and that has to take its course. And the best thing at that point for the caregiver to do is just make the person feel safe, or make the athlete feel safe. And once they've come back to a, a more natural state then you can start discussing what your next steps are 
Now, when you talk about, you know, getting back to a natural state, you know, as, as someone myself, I, I haven't had a panic attack or any of these kind of symptoms or anything like that. So for a person who may be sitting with someone who will go through these things, what are some things that maybe you've been told that people look for? And then how do you know the clarity at the end? Like when a person's finally coming to the other side and what is the length of that? Are we talking moments? Are we talking hours? Are, or is it just something that is con- consistently ongoing? That's a difficult question to ask because it's, it's different for everybody. It can mm-hmm. be just a couple minutes and it could be longer, much longer. Um, I think every situation is different, but I can tell you that some of the symptoms are you get a, an elevated respiration, which is pretty very common, elevated heart rate. You feel like you're in danger, but you're really not. And that's one of the key things you learn when you go to cognitive behavior therapy is to deal with that imminent danger you think exists, but uh, doesn't exist. It's just in your mind. Your mind is lying to you. And in my book, I don't, one thing about my book with Shattered Ice, I don't, you go through it with me in the present moment. So... The book, I kind of explain to you what I'm feeling, and it's happened to me, happening to me in the present moment. And that's kind of the focus of it, just like you were asking me what are the symptoms. So I kind of in detail and will give you a couple good uh, descriptions of what I'm feeling at that moment as the anxiety increases. All right, well, no, that's good because myself, you know, when you start hearing about you know, people with, um, you know, mental illness and just like we always say the stigma, we, we keep talking about the stigma, you know, now that it's something that's coming to the forefront, you know, people are going to want to know signs, you know, if someone's suffering, they want to be able to, to help. But like, I know like you talk about your family and friends and everyone who's rallied behind you, even the hockey community, you know, you've reached out and they've reached back, you know, people always want to be able to give a helping hand. So it's good to know what there is for visual kind of symptoms and also trying to, to work a person through it and help them and just be there. It's good to hear what you said about just, you know, riding through it with them. And then the most important thing is dialogue. And yeah. I was saying this to someone the other day, I'm a parent and uh, my boys are in their twenties now, but I was just thinking about when they were growing up and discussing things with them, how important talking to your kids is. And I thought, one of the most challenging things to talk about to your kids is sex, and the next one seems to be mental illness in a lot of cases. I just was thinking, you know, we're not comfortable talking about sex, and we're not talking, we're not comfortable talking about mental illness, and it doesn't make sense to me why that is. And uh, I don't have that answer, but that was just one of the something I thought about recently that I found confusing. So it, it really is about talking to your kids, uh, for coaches, talking to your players. I think when you spend enough time with an individual, you know what their normal behavior is. And if they're acting very out of character, um, that you just have to make create that dialogue and talk to your kids. I mean, that bell, bell, let's talk. It seems so obvious, but do we really, we need to talk to our family members more. Well, you know, with the advances in social media and the way the phones go and everything like that, for me growing up, I grew up with my grandparents because of problems within the home. You know, 
my nan always stressed, you know, it's it's FaceTime, it's Sunday dinner, it's talking, you know, what went on through the day, what problems are you facing, what's going on at school, what's going on in your life, you know, what's going on at work. You know, you always, you had that moment with your grandparents or your parents or whoever in those times. Nowadays, it seems like everything's blasted through social media and it doesn't matter. You know, you don't sit down and talk to anyone. You look at a screen, you grab a bite to eat and you run off, you know. So I'm wondering, you know, if we need to take it back to to basics, you know, and just talk to one another face to face, you know, be civilized humans opposed to arguing online and, you know, knowing that what you say, what you do can impact someone and you never know what they're thinking or feeling inside because it could absolutely add to what they're already going through and you have no idea, you know, but sitting down with someone and talking to them, whether it be through an issue or just, just talking to them, it could change the whole mental perspective of someone. Well, that's a great point. And I'll tell you, I always chuckle in the arenas too. Uh, I'll see a group of boys or girls, but in my case, I coach boys, and I'll see a group of hockey players in the arena, and they're all looking down at their phones. There might be six or seven of them. Where when I was a kid, uh, we would go around the rink, and sometimes we get in trouble for playing foot hockey in the corner. I actually have a chapter in the book called "Bumps, Breaks, and Bruises," and I, I one of my teammates broke my hand playing foot hockey in the corner before a game, and I was so nervous to uh, tell my coaches. And my uh, my dad that I played the game with the with the hand broken. I didn't know it at the time. Then after the game, we went for X-rays, and they actually had a broken hand. But my point is, we weren't staring at phones, so there was a lot more dialogue. Again, communication between teammates and even coaches are on their phones. I mean, I've been guilty of it myself. It's, I don't have the answer for that one, but I think it's more about the coaches setting maybe some rules for your individual teams. It kind of comes down to that. No, definitely. Well, I mean, you look at the NHL, you look at this uh, Fortnite craze and all these video games and everything, and I believe it was the Winnipeg Jets or the Vancouver Canucks, one of the two, that you know basically outlawed those things on the road. So teammates would bond, so you'd have to be forced to you know actually socialize with the players on your team and build a relationship opposed to hiding in your hotel room, playing games and only seeing each other at practice or team functions. So, I mean, you know, I look at that even just in regular life. I look at my daughter... You know, she's seven and the amount of time that she wants to either be on an iPad or playing a game, you know, or constantly we're out. She said, I'm bored. You know, can I play on your phone? You know, and you try to ask her about her day and it's, it's a one quick sentence. Oh, I don't know. We did this and nothing, you know, elaborate. So I, I think a lot of these electronics and things like that take away from those little moments that I, that I was just talking about. And like you said, you know, the moments you have with your, your mates playing in the hall, even though you broke your hand, it's still something that was fun. You guys were bonding together opposed to three of you sitting in a corner playing a game, four over here and two over there. You know, you all were doing something together. And, you know, that there also opens up the fact for communication. You talk to one another and, you know, as you go on in life, you know, being a part of a team like that without the electronics, so to speak, you learn to talk to people and something's bothering you. Nine times out of 10, you'll say something. And that's the way I grew up. You know, I didn't grow up with a lot of electronics or these things until my mid to late 20s. So my first avenue is to always reach out and talk or something's bothering me just to go talk about it. And I I bring it back to, like I said, sitting at that dinner table. That's where it all started from. 
So well, I have um, another chapter in Saturday's called Loss of the Pack. Yep. And just thinking about what you were saying there. I mean, hockey teams and many sports teams, in this case, mice case, hockey teams imitate life in a wolf pack. And if you're on your cell phone or playing your by yourself in, the, in your hotel room or in the corner of the arena, you're not really getting to know the rest of your team or your pack, wolf pack. And I think that's just another example of how we've become more individuals. And you think if you're on Twitter before the game or other social media and you're participating in the back and forth nonsense that can go on with, with people today, that's devastating mentally. And never mind the hockey game, you're, you're already preoccupied or perhaps anxious or not feeling good about yourself because of the, what you're reading on your phone. So probably another reason to put it down. Definitely. And I mean, a lot of those things are superficial on there, right? It's nothing, nothing real. You're not getting anything tangible out of it. You're, you're speaking to these people that you'll never know. You'll never meet. Um, and you know, they are formulating opinion either about you or something you've done or your team or whatever, and attacking you because they want a response, you know, and again, we go back to a, the person who is attacking you, you don't know what they've gone through or what their, you know, their reasoning for being the way they are is. And then at the same thing, the person doing the attacking doesn't know what the person on the other side is facing. I look at a player like Jordan Eberle of the New York Islanders, you know, and his stigma with mental health and, you know, how social media really brought him down and, you know, really beat him down to the point where he didn't use it anymore and he only recently much like yourself came out and talked about it you know so well i'm old enough that i when i played we didn't have cell phones but i will say (laughs) from my day one of the things that was very common with the players is you didn't read the papers or listen and really sports radio was just kind of getting going it was around but not to the level it is today but guys would you would just avoid reading the newspapers because it did affect you mentally. Um, having to play with phones, like you did mention Jordan Everly, that's just a, a whole nother challenge that I think as a coach now for myself, it's something I would want to monitor with my team, but I didn't live it. So as a player, and I'm sure it's a big challenge for these guys, um, especially if you're suffering, suffering mentally. Well, I want to ask you, you know, with the game going the way that it is, and like we're talking about right now with social media, um, do you think that each team, whether it be league mandated, whether it be from the NHL, the junior leagues, whatever, even if it's one or two guys for, you know, the leagues where it's, you know, triple A or whatever, do you think that there should be in-house, you know, psychiatric help available, you know, someone to talk to someone that's there. And I mean, I know it's all about comfort and actually going out and talking, but maybe someone who is trained in that field to, you know, not only just monitor the players to see, you know, their ebbs and flows, but also sees what's happening in social media, sees the way the person interacts with this team uh, and all those telltale signs. Because a player I look to right now that seems to be in the forefront for social awkwardness and it seems to be cast out by each team he goes to is Dougie Hamilton. He doesn't seem to be a player that wants to go out with the team, whether it be within boston whether it was with calgary and now the same kind of trickle effect is happening in carolina and they want to put him out the door you know i'm wondering what you'd like to see for teams do you think there should be that there and do you think there should be constant mental evaluation 
so that way you know where players are and you know what's going on because with the advancements in technology there has to be ways to be able to identify certain things and and help guys because obviously you hear a lot of guys when they either leave the game or they're forced out of the game because of these things you know then come out and speak about it but if they were able to get treatment and you know talk to or be a part of something to help them during their playing career I'm wondering if that would be you know a better step than just afterwards absolutely it would be um I think the leagues are clearly doing a better job than when I played but it's still they're just scratching the surface and I know a lot of it's some education before a season starts but I think look at what we did with concussions I mean when we were growing up you got your bell rung and they put you right back on the ice but over in the last several years at least there's a policy in place whether it's going to to the quiet room when you're suspected of having a concussion. Clearly there's still more work to be done there too, but my point is that they've put a process in place and where if you go back several years, we didn't have any program in place. So I think if we could do something similar, that's what I'd like to see, whether uh, minor leagues get the minor hockey associations get together and then the uh, junior hockey leagues get together and then the professional leagues. And you have a mental health program where it's going to be different than concussion for sure, but it's a program where players feel safe entering and asking for help when they don't feel right. So that to eliminate that suck it up mentality. And if that's ending the stigma again, if we have a program in place where players are comfortable with uh, their coaching staff and management going to see somebody because they think they need some help and they feel and not feeling like they're going to be labeled or, or uh, lose playing time over. Like If we implement it and it's league-wide at whatever level, then I think uh, that program could be successful. No, definitely. And you know what? It, this is the way that I look at it. Mental health needs to be normalized. It, it needs to be like you just said you know, moments ago, you know, oh, my back's hurting me today. You have no problem saying that to anyone. You know, oh, my knee is it's hurting today. You know, I need to get it looked at. The same thing should be with mental health. Hey, you know what? I got these feelings and I need to talk to somebody. Or, you know, this is happening when this happens. I want to speak to somebody. It needs to be normalized and not shunned and told to be put in a box and shoved under the bed and left alone. It it needs to be brought out. And people like yourself coming out with a book like Shattered Ice, you know, the good times, the bad times, you know, and just talking about it. That needs to be the new norm. It doesn't need to be the way it was, and it shouldn't be the way it was. And anybody who thinks that's the way it is, I'm sorry to say, to me, doesn't have a place in the future of the game. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, just, the, I don't think it's a coincidence that this has come on the heels of the concussion advances we're making, because we didn't worry about the head. I mean, absolutely, the game has changed. You go back and watch some old footage, I mean, the, the game is much faster the players are much bigger we've taken out the red line so we've taken away the obstruction so guys are going they're skating fast and that's like it's a very fast sport now with big people playing it and that's what led to some of the concussion issues and i'm not surprised that now mental health is coming up because it again it's the brain and it's been in some cases ignored unfortunately up to now but like I said earlier, 
the ship is turning. It's going to take some time and some leadership from certain leagues. Uh, I don't know how that all plays out. I mean, but it's good that we're talking about it, and there are programs that are starting to gain strength throughout well, North America and throughout the really the whole hockey world. Well, it's something that definitely does need to come to the forefront and it needs to be pushed. And, you know, I thank you for doing what you're doing with your book and just talking about it. You know, like you said, two years ago, it wasn't something you would have. So I'm very happy to hear that step. You know, in reading, in doing preparation for talking to you, um, you know, I read that Doug McLean did the foreword to your book. When you reached out to Doug, you know, what was his thoughts? And obviously you spilled everything to him and, and talked, you know, did he say anything that caught you off guard or, you know, was it was a I wish I knew kind of conversation or how did that yes, all play that's out? that's exactly the way it was. And that's the mask again. So yep. he said, yeah, I wish I knew. I wish I could have helped you along the way. And But that's the mask. There is no comfort in telling your coaches. So yeah. it's not anybody's fault nope. when you keep it inside. How did, there's... There's no way to really know unless, like you mentioned, the boxer where he's just completely frozen. But for most people, they just soldier on day to day. And I caught him, definitely caught him off guard. Um, He invited me down to Toronto after I phoned him to meet him for lunch. And then when we got there, it was, I was mentioning earlier, very uncomfortable. I was trying to spit it out and it it wasn't flowing really well, but I did manage to get it out there and tell him what I was suffering from and and like yeah like you said he was like wow I wish I had known but he was my favorite coach that I played for and I played for some really good ones um I played for Brian Murray Terry Murray I played my last coach I played for was Barry Trotz and I played for Robbie Laird in Baltimore but Doug uh, I had him in Baltimore as well and all those coaches are great hockey men great hockey minds leaders did all the right things and I I liked them all. Doug was my favorite and uh, he just was able to get the most out of me and I really played hard for him. I mean, you play hard for all coaches, but sometimes you just get a good connection with a coach and that was the case with me and him. Well, you know, there's always, as you keep speaking about the comfort level, right? So, I mean, obviously there's something that he was able to, to do, say, or whatever, to well, push you and you felt comfortable enough working with him to bring that out What I found out doing my book research is he has a master's degree in educational psychology. So <laughs> maybe there was a connection there which I was unaware of at that moment in my life, but it, it doesn't seem like a surprise to me that that, that uh, matched up. Well, no, and I mean with Doug, he is a, um, you know, a smooth talker, sort of speak, as well, and he knows his stuff. So, and he has a way of making people feel comfortable. I mean, listening to him on the radio, or even listen to him, you know, before he was, you know, on TV or anything, you know, you could tell that he was kind of a player's coach for a lot of guys. Yeah, and for sure, a player's coach. Um, he's honest with you. He knows how to get the most out of his players, but he rallies the troops like he's part of the gang. Like you're, he's in it with you. That's one of the best compliments I could pay him he's in the fight so you get that feeling from him in the dressing room and that's why you want to just run through walls for him because you want to win sometimes you just want to win to make your coach happy I know it might sound strange 
that's uh, what a good coach can do for you. And you talk about, you know, trying to speak with Doug and, you know, trying to get everything out. As you've gone along this journey of, you know, putting out the book and speaking to more and more people, has it become easier to speak about and, you know, expand upon each and every time as you keep going down this journey? Absolutely. I've definitely seen strides in myself that way. As a matter of fact, I sent Doug a text, though, maybe a month after I talked uh, spoken to him, and I did. I had just done my first interview with uh, an, uh, an ex uh, reporter in Baltimore that I played when I played down there. And I said to him, I sent him a message after, and I said, "I'm slowly finding my voice with this." And it just got a little easier. It still was rough that first time, or first interview, but it gets easier each time I do it. And again, that's back to the stigma. I've gone from having difficulty getting the words literally out of my mouth to I can pretty freely talk about it now and want to. Now, with a lot of things to do with mental health and, and talking about things, every time I hear someone say, you know, when they talk about their issues and things that have gone on, they say that every time they speak about it, it almost feels like a small bit of the weight comes off each and every time because you're explaining it you're letting people know that it's not something to be ashamed of and you're also getting your story out there and talking about it obviously opens, like you said, opens you up. So I'm wondering for yourself, do you feel a little bit more, you know, less heavy about it each time you get to speak about it and educating others about it obviously is, you know, a, a sub part of it, but it's something that can make you feel good as well by getting it out there and letting others know. I got the... The first weight lifted off my shoulder was when I listened to Michael Landsberg. <laughs> like you said, earlier. Yeah. Second weight lifted off my shoulder was when I watched a, a TED Talks video on panic attacks and the, woman, the lady doing the discussion in very, very uh, specific detail talked about a panic attack. That was the first time I heard that verbalized. And that took some weight off. But then you mentioned the word shame. I, I wanted to come back to that because the shame also adds shame and guilt are some of the feelings that you have that lead to some of the the difficultness in dealing with it and um, by another so that when that shame comes when you start talking about it and you can release the shame and guilt that is another big weight lifted off your shoulder and then the other word I would use is vulnerable um, you make yourself vulnerable when you stop when you start to talk about it and that's part of the uncomfortableness you feel and the, the apprehensiveness, but that the being vulnerable to sometimes coworkers or, or in the case of athletes, like people see you as this warrior and now you're vulnerable and saying, well, you know what? I'm sick. I'm not weak. And that's another from uh, Michael, sick, not weak. But, but for years it's been, mental health has been associated with, or illness has been associated with weakness. And it's not, it's sick. It's an illness. You're sick, so you can get better. So taking away that vulnerability also releases the weight. So I, I do feel a lot better overall. But it never goes away. That's the other challenge. You just have better tools in the toolbox to deal with it. Definitely. No, I mean, just to hear you talk about it now and, and what you were saying about, you know, a couple of years ago and then talking, obviously trying to get out to Doug, the fluidity you have about talking about it 
you know, it's good because obviously you know that your message is resonating and also it's getting out there and, and you're able to tell it yourself to to ease the burden. And like you said as well, though, it doesn't go away. It's something that you always need to work with and know is there. But it also helps now that others know what to do and know that you are facing something and you're not in it alone. And like yeah, you said, my wife has been a champ. I mean, yep, she's been amazing uh, as far as support for me goes, even back to when I was acute a couple of years ago and she still wasn't entirely sure what was happening. We always knew that something was not quite right, but she just, we just thought it was my personality. I mean, and that's part of the stigma again. I never got help. I never asked for help. So you just think this is who I am and this is what I got to be or live with. So, and deal with it. But yeah, she's been a very steady support person for me. And she's the one that always says to me, I just, you, I just want to make you feel safe. And then I said that a little bit earlier for other people who are caregivers. When people are struggling with mental illness, you just have to make them feel safe and loved. Well, that's the key. I mean, that is 100% the key. Now, see, I want to ask you, if you could right now, you know, and you have the ear of everyone who would listen to this show, what advice would you give someone right now who is going through something similar to what you've gone through? What advice would you give to that person right now? And what would you say if you were able to speak just directly to them? I would say you're not alone. Your family loves you and they're there for you and you have to go out and ask for help. And it might be, there's different types of help out there. There's psychotherapy, there's psychologists, there's natural paths, which played a large part in my uh, improvement, going to a natural path and getting my uh, nutrition in order. And then uh, you may need medication, so you got to go see your medical practitioner. And you have to use all these different methods. And, And I call it a holistic approach because I don't think there's one right. There's not just one answer for suffering from mental illness. I think you have to look at that holistic approach and get... It starts with the support of your family, and then you go out and seek the help you need to get better because you can beat it. And as I mentioned earlier, you put tools in the toolbox. So another, there's cognitive behavior therapy. There's different therapies you can go to that just allow you to cope and acknowledge what you're dealing with and live your life and appreciate the things in your life. That's a that's a hundred percent a way to to look at it and. You know, I hope anyone who does listen tonight or to the show over the time that it's out that, you know, like you just said, you're not alone and and to face it and to take the proper steps. And what you said is going to resonate with lots of people. And, you know, again, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to to do the book and to talk about the issues because it's something that needs to be pushed and not pushed away. So I can tell you also when I wrote the book, Initially, I was writing it with some anger and bitterness, and it was a bit dark. And my editor asked me if that was the book I wanted to write, and I said it wasn't. So I did change my tune, and I tried to write a little bit more about the joy of the game, from even from playing on that backyard rink in my first arena in Kitchener called Queens Mount Arena, which is the name of Chapter 1. And <laughs> I had some great experiences along the way including going to Czechoslovakia and when I was a midget and 
NHL draft, NHL draft. So the mental health is tied into it, but I, I didn't want it to be solely about that. I wanted it also to be a book about the joy of the sport, and it is the game we all love. No, definitely. Well, speaking of the game that we all love, I have to ask, do you watch the, the NHL now or any hockey now, and are you invested in any teams or anything like that? I do. Um, initially, when I first retired, I found it very difficult to watch for a few years, but I did that, got that out of my system. Um, the, well, I'll tell you, my funny story about who I follow now is, is, is this. I don't have a favorite team. But I was born in 1968, and the Toronto Maple Leafs last won the Stanley Cup in 1967. So I'm 51. I have not won the Cup in my lifetime. So I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a fan, but I want the Leafs to win the Cup one time. After what I watched, I've watched the Blue Jays win the, the World Series. I watched the Raptors. We've all got, many of us watched the Raptors and see the, the the amazing response in Toronto and, and across Canada for that run. Yep. But I don't I can't imagine what it'd be like, especially in especially in Ontario. But V fans travel well across Canada and North America. So Oh for sure. I want the Leafs to win the cup one. <laughs> that's my <laughs> so that's my my story about that. Well you know what Steve, I hope the Leafs win the cup for you and for everyone else <laughs> Who would like them to win the cup? Obviously, this show we are leaf centric when the Leafs are on during the season, and we try to do off you know different things throughout the summer because you know there's a lot of good stories in hockey and a lot of good people to talk to. And you know, I want to thank you very much for for taking the time tonight. You know, on a beautiful evening in Waterloo to sit down and, and talk to me. You know about your book, your journey, and everything to go with it. And I, I really appreciate it. All right, thank you. I'll just say my book is uh, available, Shattered Ice, on Amazon.ca in Canada and Amazon.com in the United States. Um, I was very excited as I sold one book was purchased on Amazon Australia, which is <laughs> kind of funny, and uh, another one was purchased by uh, a New Zealander, so I've gone international. You're just like Leaf fans. You're well-traveled now. Well-traveled, yes. It's been very exciting the last couple of weeks as uh, Shattered Ice has finally hit the shelf, well, hit the hit Amazon um, after it took me about seven, 16 months to write it. Well, that is amazing. And I did see through a few articles as well that you do have some book signings coming up as well. Have those happened or are they still in the future here? They're coming up uh, September in Waterloo. I'm doing October in Kitchener. And I'm going to my old junior stomping grounds uh, November sixteenth, I'm going to Kingston, Ontario. And, uh, so I, I'm, I still have family there, but that's where I played my junior hockey for the Kingston Canadians. So it's still a very special city to me, and I, it's kind of like a second home for for our family. And via social media, can we see all the dates and times once those get a little bit closer? Yes, uh, if you go on my, I have a Shattered Ice Facebook page where. Um, where I'll post those and uh, on Twitter I'm at SL Septal and I'm also uh, on Instagram Steve Sept so I will definitely put those dates uh, on those as we get closer to those appearances I will make sure those dates are on social media and the locations they'll be at Indigo, at Indigo stores in the three cities 
Well, that's perfect. And we as well will also put it out there once we see it more. And of course, we'll have your handle with the title of this show so people can come and check you out. And also be sure to check out Shattered Ice by Steve Scheftel. And make sure if you have something going on in your life, get out and speak to someone and the stigma and, you know, speak to your family and friends. Make sure people know what's going on with you. And Steve, I want to thank you very much for being a champion of that cause. Thanks for having me, James. It was a nice discussion.